Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we have a very interesting founder, you know, a founder that uh, was definitely going through the uh, corporate America career of really making it happen in, in private equity, consulting, and then all of a sudden, you know, a 360 degree and, and really went at it as a founder. And I guess that that's definitely a story that many of us can relate with, but, you know, I guess uh, we'll have our guest tell him himself the story. So, Paul Hedrick, welcome to the show today. Well, thank you for having me. So, Paul, originally you were born and raised in Texas. How was life there? That's right. Uh, I'm a proud Texan, uh, which plays a lot, uh, plays well with our audience these days, <laughs> running a cowboy boot brand. But, uh, yeah, I was born in Houston, raised in Dallas, had a Pretty awesome childhood, honestly. Nothing to complain about. Um, great place to grow up. Uh, you know, I went. I, I did the twelve years in Catholic school route, which was, you know, an interesting experience and uh, one that I'm grateful for. But yeah, I mean, I, I love Texas. I it, Texas instilled in me a, a love for the state for sure. And like many Texans, when I left later on uh, for both college and part of my career, you know, I was kind of yearning to come back and. Uh, you know, always wanted Texas to be a part of who I am. And, you know, some of the best founders that I come across are those that have the creativeness with them. And I know that uh, pretty early on, you know, you were into art, illustration, and you even wanted to be a cartoonist. So tell us about this. Uh, yeah. Yeah. My my career trajectory or my career desire trajectory was an interesting one growing up. Of course, I like any kid, I fell in love with dinosaurs for a little while and thought I wanted to be a paleontologist. But really in my call it middle school. I, I, I realized I had a knack for art. You know, I would go to art shows and competitions and would draw, you know, mostly draw illustration. Um, and I also thought I was a bit of a comedian, uh, although those dreams have long ago been quashed. Uh, and I thought that being a cartoonist would be a good uh, combination of those two skills. And then later, I uh, actually wanted to be an architect. Um, so all over the place, of course, with my uh, career desires. And then I ended up when I, you know, got to college um, after, you know, really spending a lot of time. I actually played piano for 15 years, um, you know, kind of in a concert setting, um, you know, it was in theater classes. And when I went to college, uh, really, you know, I went to Harvard for undergrad and, 
you know, it, it's, you kind of have to pick what you want to be good at there. And, um, you know, unfortunately I ended up kind of putting a lot of that right brain stuff to the side, um, uh, was happy to focus and ended up studying economics and math, uh, with the intention of going into business, which I thought was a much broader use of skill set um, than potentially going into the arts and was happy with that decision, but always kind of in the back of my mind, um, wanted to get back to it. I mean, it's quite a, it's quite a switch. Uh, can you tell us about more of this uh, right brain and left brain, you know, that, uh, that you were discussing about how you're using one side or the other? Yeah, sure. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I really enjoyed school. Uh, I, I, which I actually, it's funny. I don't think many entrepreneurs say that. I think a lot of entrepreneurs felt, you know, don't, don't love school because they feel it's restrictive and, um, you know, they want to get out there and sell and, you know, meet customers. And, um, now I, I like, I have that bone too. I think I love retail and, and where I am now is the right place to be. But, um, I actually liked learning about all these different topics. And, and I, so I liked the right brain as much as the left brain. I, I, I was in painting classes, but I was also on the math team. Um, you know, I, 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 was, you know, I played sports, but also was in theater and I was lucky to go to a tiny school. I wasn't actually super great at any of those things. Um, but, uh, growing up was lucky to be able to do all those things. And, and I believe in being a well-rounded person. I still do. And I try to encourage our team today to be well-rounded and, and to get involved cross-functionally. But, um, yeah, I ended up really realizing that you got to concentrate in a few things. So I majored in economics, um, really in the left brain side and got into ended up picking a career in consulting to start out, um, you know, kind of got my dream job, um, at McKinsey and company and, uh, which was an amazing place to work, but definitely hardcore business training. Um, and, uh, you know, decidedly left brain, I would say, although, um, you're certainly encouraged to make beautiful presentations, which I took very seriously. And, uh, um, And yeah, and I think uh, ended up, you know, jumping from there um, into private equity. And, and but it, part of this, like I mentioned, I always kind of had this desire to work out more of my brain and myself. And you know, I think that ended up leading to a lot of my entrepreneurial decision making later on. And also, you were mentioning to me that the um, that the experience, you know, doing the consulting. I mean, obviously, your your father was also a consultant, so I'm sure he was happy that you mm -hmm. took that route. You know, so very much inspired by him. But but I guess you see or you saw um, a Bain or 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 sorry, McKinsey, kind of like as a as a toolkit. So so why is this? Yeah, I think looking at it in retrospect, first of all, amazing people work there. Uh, truly, a you know, I think consulting. And that place specifically inspired me to see what a what a workplace could like that stands by their values and you know basically attracts people who um, I mean are, are pretty amazing to work with um, that care a lot they're passionate uh, they're compassionate um, but uh, I have those takeaways probably first and foremost but then if you ask me what I got out of it personally like yeah I mean it was an incredible like fire hose experience I was wholly unqualified for the role you know I went to a liberal arts school, um, which is code for, they don't teach you anything about business or Microsoft programs. So, you know, I literally went in not knowing, not having ever opened Excel, I think, um, you know, and expected to be a, you know, Excel workhorse on the, you know, project number one. So, uh, you end up learning a lot of that and you don't leave that firm or any of those firms really without, having built a really solid, both analytical, but also strategic, importantly, skill set and learning what the difference is between 
I think, you know, just analytics and um, in summaries and, and then between that and like driving synthesis and like asking the, so what was always uh, what I noticed to be the difference. And I, I, yeah, I mean, it was an incredible toolkit building experience. And um, for example, like Gary, away. in, in, yeah. in McKinsey, were you able to, for example, really understand or really experience the before and the after on, on how you were tackling problems before the McKinsey experience? And then once you had all that toolkit, how you were really going about tackling problems? Oh, by far and away. I mean, I don't think I had a really, I don't think I had the ability to before. And I think I came away with, you know, a frame, a style, you know, the ability to create frameworks of thinking and, I mean, believe me, I, I, I had a long way to go. This it was I had a very nascent um, consulting career that I cut short. But um, yeah, I, I, it, I, I don't think I could have gone anywhere better. And I don't. And it could be could have been another firm, but I don't think I could have done a better thing for my career than that. Because right off the bat, I didn't. I didn't. I wasn't working in any bad habits um, that I might have gotten if I had gone deep into one trade or. You know, gone to work for a corporate environment that maybe um, would have shaped the way I thought. Uh, you know about the world, more closer to their worldview. Instead, I had a you know pretty broad-based and open-minded um, in problem-solving mindset from day one, which I think has inspired a lot of how I thought about my decision-making process later on. Got it. And obviously, you know, you were achieving here, like being in in one of the best consulting firms, and. And here you're making your father very proud, and and obviously you know I'm sure he's still very 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 proud even more. But uh, you know at that point maybe he was shocked that uh, you decided to 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 go for private equity. No, no, um, yeah, I mean I've been lucky in that I've been able to make all of my kind of independent or education and and career decisions um, pretty independently with a lot of support from my uh, friends and family, but. Um, yeah, I ended up jumping, uh, <laughs> quitting consulting pretty early on, um, mostly because I wasn't really working in the industry that I wanted to work in. I, I've had a, a love for consumer, um, uh, the consumer industry for a, you know, for a long time. Um, I'd always been, you know, kind of gravitated toward brands as a bit of a product geek. You know, I loved reading magazines about. Uh, you know, cars and, and technology products and, and um, you know, just anything in the, in, in the consumer facing world. And I, I, I had, I wasn't really working in that world in consulting and I had this opportunity to work for this awesome brand building investment firm that literally exclusively invests and operates consumer companies. And not only that, but, you know, high growth consumer companies. So I jumped at that, uh, even if, again, I kind of felt unqualified for the role and ended up having a pretty interesting um, couple of years there where my role evolved. I became kind of the first person at that company to focus 100% on helping operate companies that um, we had owned or invested in. And, and so in many ways did, did largely the same type of work that I did in consulting and that I was you know, spending a lot of time on site uh, with companies um, helping them think about strategic problems. And, and, but then, you know, the difference between that and consulting was that I was actually helping solve them because we were helping operate the companies, which was really fun and interesting and really got me closer to operating. So how, how real is the, um, the pattern recognition that people talk about when you're, you know, on the other side of the table as, a, as an investor? Yeah, it, it is real. It's a very, it's a different skill set, obviously. And I, I, don't, I don't even think, you know, the, the investor skill set is one that I 
was really able to gain there, although I was lucky to have a lot of exposure to that world, um, even though most of the time I was traveling um, to different portfolio companies. I, every week, you know, I came to the office and was part of the deal um, meetings and you know, got to hear how you know, the senior partners thought through decisions and um, super interesting and gave me a, a, a respect for um, you know, knowing that there are, there are good companies out there, there are great companies out there, and there are companies that um, aren't so good or great. And sometimes it's hard to predict. Um, if they're going to be good or great, but if you commit to them, you you commit to them, and you and you put resources behind them. And I think that was the difference between being a, a service provider, you know, kind of client services versus kind of having having skin in the game. I think that was a that was an important mindset that I learned, uh, probably more so than being an investor, although it's very similarly tied um, to being an investor. And you started to think, you know, while while being there, that maybe business school was the way to go, but they obviously a, a little rejection changed the course of everything. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like every other uh, person in my um, role, I, I went and applied. There was a certain school in Boston and a certain school in the Bay Area. <laughs> I tried to get into each of them. I, I didn't even get an interview <laughs> at either of them. And, you know, it, had, it made me think, I think, uh, I'm, first of all, uh, like most grateful, I'm, yeah, I'm extraordinarily grateful that I did not get into either of those schools because I would have gone and I probably never would have taken my career in, in the direction I have taken in the last five years. But um, it definitely was able to, it was, a, it was a moment that forced me to think. I mean, I didn't, hadn't created any other options for myself. And for me, I, ended, I literally was like at beers with a couple colleagues and just had this moment where one of the guys, you know, looked at me and was like, you know, you know, you could start a company that, that is on the option table. Cause I was kind of going through my options. Like, Oh, I could go to business school. I could, I could stay here. I could learn to you know, invest. I could, um, you know, kind of go the operating route. Um, and it was just sort of, that was like light bulb moment number one for me. And I, and I don't think I would have had that moment if I hadn't kind of reached this sort of rejection moment in my life. Um, yeah, it went from there. And obviously the um, the decision of becoming an entrepreneur, you know, which is what what led after this, you know, was a, a decision that was made in darkness. How 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 was this process for you? Yeah, um, I mean, it's humbling. Uh, you know, I, I I I've I've had a lot of rejection at different moments in my life, and um, I think each of them has been really formative, as they are for many people. Uh, for me, it forced me to think more about myself in a, in a really critical way. I think it forced me to get off the tracks. Um, and getting off the tracks made me realize that I was a little different from my, some of my colleagues and that I had this desire to create more so, you know, more so than I think a lot of my friends and colleagues did. Um, it kind of made me remember that I had this part of me that I hadn't been kind of working out in a long time. And you know, it, the more I, the, originally the idea of being an entrepreneur was crazy, but, you know, the more I thought about it, the more I was like, I'm betting on myself. Um, and if using the logical part of my brain, because um, it's illogical to just bet on yourself, I guess, but the logical part of my brain was, you know, hey, I'm, I'm 26. Um, how many times in my life am I going to be able to risk everything that I have, um, make a bet that is you know, high downside, relatively speaking, but, but very high upside, both in myself and the learnings that I'll create, but also, you know, potentially in, you know, high upside in the business world. 
um, and financially. And so, you know, I, that was logical. That's a risk-weighted decision. And I don't think I would have even considered that, you know, kind of logical decision path if I hadn't been there. So, yeah, for me, it was, I got comfortable with the idea of being an entrepreneur. Um, I kind of got the idea. I started to think about the idea of creating a brand from scratch and how exciting, just how excited that made me was, you know, signal number one. And then, man, I was lucky. I literally was wearing cowboy boots to the office because as I mentioned earlier, I, as being a Texan away from home, you kind of gravitate towards your Texanness. And so I made a point of wearing these exotic ostrich skin cowboy boots to the office every Monday, whenever I went to Greenwich and, um, I looked down at them and was like, man, this this industry is really interesting. I I remember the the moment that I bought these and and I should dig into this. And man, the more I learned, the more I realized it was uh, it was the path I needed to go on. So especially with the consulting background, I'm sure that you were able to do a lot of research and a lot of of validation no, around the market and you know how big this could be. So. So how did you apply, you know, what you had learned so far, you know, being at McKinsey or being at the private equity firm to really understand if this idea had or, or, or didn't have legs? Yeah, so I approached it from a couple angles. Um, one was, uh, well, maybe a few angles. One was was purely analytical, which is just, hey, is, is this industry, is it bigger than a bread box? You know, how competitive is it? Um, and, you know, what's out there? Um, and that angle was the answer was pretty clear. It's a much bigger industry than most people realize. There, you know, I, I basically figured out that there were, you know, over three billion dollars of cowboy boots sold every year in the U.S. And it was a robust and growing industry. Um, uh, it was a fragmented industry. It had all these aspects of it that were that were really um, attractive. Um, the second was kind of the experience I had, you know, recently gained, which is more in the brand world and the consumer-facing world, and you know, what was the brand problem that existed in the category, if any? And it became immediately clear to me, both as a customer and as sort of an investor operator, that there was so clearly a brand missing from this category. It, you know, there was basically only a couple types of brands in the category. There was the kind of the, and they're all price-oriented. It was like the really high price-oriented luxury brand and the kind of value-oriented, um, you know, kind of everyman uh, brand that, and for me... I, you know, I kind of wanted the, the everyman boot price for the, but I wanted to, you know, I wanted to buy the luxury brand. Um, and, uh, and it, to me, it made a lot of sense that, you know, you could, you should be able to do that. Like the mass should be able to work, especially if you go direct to consumer. And then more importantly, like, you know, retail has evolved so much. Um, and on the brand front, people really want, people want it all. The, the modern consumer wants the best price, the best product, the best experience, the best customer service, um, transparency, omni-channel—you know, digital and physical—and they want everything. And you know, nobody was doing that because a brand hadn't been started in the category in like 25 years. So that was the brand side, and then and then the third was just the emotional side. You know, I, I, I had had you know sort of this on the tracks corporate you know career and. For me, I, I knew that I was kind of a different animal and it would make, I, I was going to be happier betting on myself and I was going to be happier in a, in a category and doing something that I thought was really fun. And frankly, like back in Texas and unique to myself and something I could put my name on and, and kind of get off the tracks a little bit. And that was all an emotional decision. And, and, you know, 
those three things combined was enough. <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. So, Paul, so what was what was exactly that moment that you told yourself, I need to do this. I have to do this. You know, this was probably spring 2014. And then, you know, I realized I kind of thought about, um, which I was towards the end of my two years at this firm. And I had sort of thought about the idea of, you know, maintaining maintaining an income and, and, and doing this, you know, kind of nights and weekends. And I realized my, I'm kind of all in uh, on it, on one thing, like, uh, as people in my personal life might tell you, like, it's hard for me to do like a lot of things really well. Like I'm going to just going to go all in on this thing. So, um, I, I realized I had to quit my job and that's really when I truly committed. I'd say mentally I committed in the spring and then, you know, I moved, I, I, I voted with my feet that summer and moved to Austin. Um, and you know, I, I needed to get back to Texas and I picked Austin as the place to start the brand. And, you know, I was pot committed. Got it. So then you moved to Austin and, and what's, what happens next? You know, it, this is the, <laughs> this is probably the hardest part about being an entrepreneur is, you know, there, there's no, there's no playbook for what happens next. Um, and, you know, I think the way I approached it was using the only skills I, you know, I had, which were sort of, well, let me break down the problem. Let me figure out what is, what is the, if I'm going to start a, a brand and, and you know, at, at this point, the brand, the idea had evolved into a digitally native direct to consumer Western boot brand. Um, and you know, there wasn't, there wasn't a whole lot more besides that. Um, but I knew that it would be, it would need, you know, we would start online only. So, you know, so I'd need a website, I need a brand, I need a storefront, you know, online an e-commerce store. Um, and frankly, I just, I just worked backwards. I just kind of looked at, you know, websites and figured like, oh, they have terms of service. Like I probably need to, a terms of service. I should, oh, I, I probably need an attorney. Oh yeah, I need an attorney to start the company. And I just kind of worked backwards and then ended up creating a list of things in different buckets like legal, brand, web, product, um, supply chain, uh, marketing plan, go to market. And, um, you know, I had like seven or eight of these buckets and I just had a checklist and I kind of worked backwards and it was my first real project management experience that, um, you know, went to that end. It's a, it's unbelievable because also you were, um, a solo founder and when you are a solo founder is, it's quite lonely. So, uh, how, how have you managed, you know, like really this journey of, of being a solo founder? And then also, how did you go, you know, going back to, to those early days, how did you go about building your team? Yeah. Um, so that, you know, that, that year and change that I was working on a solo, I mean, they were tough. Uh, you know, I, I, I had, I, I was, I had not really thought about the value of having a network of entrepreneurs and other people kind of in the same boat. I didn't even know that was possible. And today I'm grateful to, um, you know, I have a network of people that I can talk to about these things, other, other CEOs and founders. And I wish I had sought that out more um, intentionally then. But honestly, like it was just a lot of putting my head down and knowing that I trusted, you know, if I broke it down to discrete problems, like it wasn't going to be overwhelming because I knew I could, like, well, I know I can meet with a branding agency and I know I can pick a logo and I know that logo can be used to do this. And I know I can hire, you know, if you break it all apart, the individual tasks were, were manageable. Um, and I knew I had, you know, I was getting feedback along the way. You know, I, I knew that, you know, my, I ended up deciding, I designed the product, um, but I got a lot of feedback on that. I, you know, I drew stuff. I, 
I, I talked to potential customers. I talked to my friends and family and, you know, I wasn't, I didn't lock myself in a basement for a year, but, um, I knew that, uh, I knew I wanted to understand every single part of both the company and the, and the product itself. And I wasn't going to, someone couldn't teach me that. So that gave me comfort in knowing that at the very least I'd come out of this being an extraordinarily knowledgeable, um, you know, maybe CEO of nothing, but an extraordinarily knowledgeable founder um, uh, in my field, and that I would have learned a lot through that process. And then, frankly, I, don't, I mean, I don't think I could have sustained that for that much longer. I was lucky that uh, Brandon, um, my now co-founder and, and CMO, ended up joining the team a couple of months after officially launched. And, you know, my approach to building team was, it was him and me for year one, basically. And uh, it was just, you know, all I needed was one other guy, the other side, you know, at the end of the table and, you know, that emotional burden could be shared. And, um, you know, those you could at the very least split a couple things. Um, so, you know, I think if you look back in the first few years of Jacobs, you know, we just turned four, um, first, you know, first three years were really defined by being really scrappy, really sales focused, really customer focused, and really not at all focused on infrastructure or anything that required fixed costs. And, you know, so we ended up having a really scrappy team. We only hired people when we really needed them and we gave them a lot of breadth of responsibility. Um, you know, everyone in the organization was super sales focused. Um, I think the best piece of advice I ever got in that first year as it relates to building a team and building the company was sales are everything. You know, this is a consumer brand. This isn't, um, you know, it isn't uh, an art show. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, you know, you're only going to make money if, if, if people want, if you make products people want to buy and if they buy it from you and you got to find them, you know, yep. they don't care about it. A hundred percent. And obviously, you know, like when we're talking about cowboy boots, you know, it's been an industry that has been, you know, there for a while. So, you know, Obviously, when you're building a brand of this nature, distribution and exposure is, is king. So uh, how did you go about like really doing that in a creative way uh, and also, you know, like really getting out there and, and, and make sure that Tecova knew, knew about, I mean, the world knew about Tecova? Yeah. So we did a couple of things. Um, one was the kind of really scrappy route and somewhat creative route, which was um, what can we do ourselves without any help from anyone? or the internet for that matter. Um, and um, we ended up kind of going to a bunch of trunk shows. Brandon and I committed to doing at least one, the target was two in-person selling events a week. Um, you know, so I had this, I had bought this like 20 year old forerunner SUV um, when I started the company because uh, my old coupe was not sufficient for carrying boots and I could fit 60 pairs 60 boot boxes in the back of this SUV. So we would go, we'd drive to Dallas, we'd drive to Fort Worth, we'd drive all over Austin and uh, we'd sell them out of the back. We'd go into, you know, we'd go to junior league holiday fairs. And, you know, I think the reason we did those things, um, it certainly didn't drive, you know, you know, millions of dollars of revenue, but um, it did two things. One, it, it actually did drive enough revenue to, to pay some of the bills. I mean, we were a pretty scrappy team. We had a two person WeWork office and two underpaid, uh, you know, guys, um, and that was it. That was basically our only fixed costs. Um, so we didn't need a lot to cover it. But the other thing it did was, you know, we ended up learning how to sell. 
We learned we learned how to talk to customers. We learned what they actually said. What were the first things out of their mouth when they touched the boot? When they when they ask us about the brand? Um, you know, what are all those things that we need to answer and make sure both digitally and physically will be present uh, to create this amazing customer experience? And then uh, the other thing we did was, you know, listen, we we knew that the only way to really grow at scale, which you know we thought was the right thing to do for our customers. Uh, was to get good at online advertising. And so, you know, we wanted to do it in a measured way. We didn't want to do it in a way that we were going to raise some huge venture round and then commit a huge chunk of it um, to ads or something like that. We wanted to do it in a in a way that, you know, we were only going to spend more money when we'd figured out really how to spend the money we already had, you know, kind of incrementally, one step at a time. And, you know, that ended up becoming Brandon's job. You know, he basically took over growth and marketing. And, you know, I was like, well, I'll just take everything else. I'll take product and ops and, you know, general strategy stuff. And um, yeah, we ended up, you know, we, we ended up getting good at, at advertising. We only got good because we had to get good. And so those are the, those are the two things we did uh, to grow. And I think, I mean, that basically got us to eight figures in revenue without really doing anything else. I mean, I was really focused on continuing to design and develop and bring things to market and, you know, Brandon and I partnered on how to sell it and kept things pretty simple, you know? Very nice. Very nice. Very nice. And then also you guys have raised a quite a bit of money for this too. So how much have you guys raised today? Yeah. So the first three years uh, are, uh, you know, we raised about 4 million. So we're really, I would say extremely bottom line focused. Um, it's pretty scrappy and, you know, got the business to, to quite a bit of scale on that. And then about a year ago, uh, raised a $30 million venture round um, led by Elephant, uh, a great venture capital firm, a, a dual base in New York and Boston. Very nice. You know, one thing that uh, that is super uh, interesting to me here is that typically a company like yours, obviously, when you are maturing in in revenue and, and you're going, you know, maybe, you know, passing to or getting to that financing cycle that it might make sense to raise money, typically is private equity firms, uh, not so much venture capital firms. So so how did you or how did these VCs, you know, really see the hyper growth route on a story like Tecovas? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, and, you know, finding the right capital partner is an extraordinarily important you know, question for any CEO in that position to tackle. Um, I would say for us, it was a little bit idiosyncratic to to the firm that we ended up working with, but um, it's they're, they're kind of in between venture and growth, really, at the end of the day, which is part of what makes their firm unique. Um, I agree that um, we ended up turning off the venture world <laughs> a lot in the early days. I mean, I met with a lot of venture capital firms in the first few years. I wasn't avoiding them, uh, even though we only really ended up raising money from angels. The reason that we never raised venture before was because... I always had this kind of really pragmatic, you know, grounded in realism view of the brand. And of course, I had big dreams for Tecovis, and I knew that we would have a huge impact on the category that we were in uh, and for customers at large. But I also knew that, it, you know, it, it was a, a retail company at the end of the day and that, you know, maybe tech investors who expect it to be a billion dollars or bust aren't the right partners for us. Um, and that's how I felt in the early days. And certainly that, that turned off a lot of people. Um, uh, so yeah, it, it, you know, you're right actually. And that, um, the private equity mindset maybe is a bit more measured growth and less risky, uh, 
you know, fewer zeros, but, but fewer, you know, 100x investments too. But um, I think for us, the reason that we ended up raising venture is, it's, man, it still feels like the early days. It's felt like the second inning. You know, a year ago, uh, you know, while we were doing, you know, tens of millions in revenue, we uh, had literally only had one sales channel, Tecovis.com. Uh, we had, you know, no, no stores, uh, no other sales channels of any kind. We really only sold one type of product, um, kind of this, this one specific type of cowboy boot, like even, even more specific within that industry, you know, like, you know, people who don't know about cowboy boots, you know, think maybe they're all the same, but like, we're actually serving a pretty narrow set of even that market. So there was both just this massive growth potential on both the product and the channel side that, um, yeah, I mean, it made a ton of sense to know, to believe the story that we could, you know, 10 X from there or, you know, whatever the, whatever the right number was going to be and, you know, still feel that way to this day. So, yeah. Yeah. And you got there as well. Um, you're mentioning elephant, you know, as one of your investors, I mean, uh, one of the, uh, folks there is, uh, Andy Hunt. He was uh, one of the founders as well of, uh, of Warby Parker. So he understood, the concept of getting something that is in the consumer that is a little bit more traditional and then really throwing it on the hyper growth path and scaling it up. Uh, and they've done it, you know, with, with Warby Parker. But I guess saying now, uh, you know, I see as well that people are calling you guys the Warby Parker of cowboy boots. How is that? <laughs> well, I know I think they make the comparison because, um, you know, we're 100% direct to consumer, similar to they. We've, you know, started out online. Um, and have have created what is a high quality product at an affordable price, you know, by basically cutting out the traditional retail supply chain, you know, basically just the wholesale retail uh, markup, um, among other things. So, um, you know, it, it's it's there's been a lot of Warby Parker of of X companies out there that have started in the last five or ten years, and so I'm not surprised to get the comparison. And I I think I'm, I'm honored with that comparison. I mean, that's a great company who's um, doing great things and really, you know, some, some, some way setting the pace in terms of how to measure growth and, you know, when to invest in a different channel like stores. And, you know, it, it was a big inspiration for us, um, to open stores. Um, and, you know, now we're, <laughs> we're doing that path, uh, of course, for all of our own reasons and for reasons that make a ton of sense for our category and for our brand, but yeah. And how is that, how is that, that, you know, typically, People would open the store and then throw the website. You guys threw the website, started doing a ton in revenues, and then you actually did the store. So, I mean, can you just walk us through this strategy? Because it's mind-blowing. Yeah. You know, it, it's funny because that is the market perception. But um, from our perspective, and when you really think about it, you know, the online first and then offline makes a lot of sense. And um, the way we view it is, you know, you basically can have national reach right off the bat with online with very minimal fixed cost investment. Um, and you're able to test and learn quite easily on the product and the customer front, much more so than you are with, you know, more slower moving static channels. Um, and uh, the other thing that we found is, you know, once, if you have a business that's large enough, you know, we have, you know, we opened our first store in Austin, we had thousands of customers in Austin already. Um, and, you know, one of the biggest risks of opening a store is, is it going to work? You know, uh, and, you know, we have two advantages on that front. We, we, first of all, we know where our customers are. I mean, we've literally shipped every customer that has ever bought our boots online. 
um, or bags or belts or, you know, jeans for that matter. Um, uh, we know where they live, <laughs> you know, um, we have their address and their email address and, um, and, you know, so we, we know where our customers are. Uh, and the other thing is we, not only do we know where, where they are, but we can talk to them and they're interested in us being around because they've already experienced us. And, you know, most people who experience a brand online are quite, are quite a bit more interested, um, than the average person when that, when that brand opens a store. So it's, it's really a, a virtuous cycle. Um, and I wouldn't have it any other way. And, you know, it's led to us having a pretty successful retail strategy so far. Every one of our stores has been, you know, has opened extraordinarily successfully because, you know, we, we put them in the right places and, you know, we already have a built-in customer base. And I've also heard that really going with this strategy also, uh, it increases by a mile the, the loyalty, you know, on the, on the people that are buying your boots. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, we, we've got a long way to go uh, to really understand how this is all going to work um, over the years, but yeah, I mean, immediately we've noticed, you know, I think you know, customers that experience this either first or even, you know, as a repeat customer in the store tend to come back significantly more quickly. Uh, you know, here's, here's the thing, you know, we view stores as an opportunity to raise the bar of customer experience, not just get another place to sell the boots. You know, we're, we're in a category that for, a, you know, Jacobus was created to, to fill a brand gap. Um, which, you know, is kind of regardless of sales channel, this is the brand gap. We want to be the brand that's going to have the best quality, the best customer service, and kind of the most sort of transparent, straightforward, honest business model. Um, what we've treated stores as, as a way to add hospitality and an even more elevated level of service and a cool environment that simply, you frankly, just can't match online. So it's not just, you know, that they, it's easier to, buy because you don't have to worry about you know, putting a return label on the box it's actually it's really cool you know we serve alcohol and have music and really cool uh you know awesome sales associates <laughs> who are uh you know it's more fun to do that frankly sometimes yeah. than than to click buy from your cubicle <laughs> absolutely and and the next question here that i have is just for the listeners to get an idea of how big tecovas is today can you give us um kind of like um, a thirty thousand foot view yeah, so uh, we don't share revenue or valuation or anything like that, um, since we're very much in the throes of things in the, in the private market. But um, yeah, we've we currently have five stores. You know, we've been around for four years. You know, we've been you know an eight plus figure business for a couple of years now. Um, and uh, you know, what I'm most proud of is the team has grown a lot. Uh, and uh, you know, we were really scrappy with the team in the early days, and we still are. But um, super fortunate to have had a lot of people join the team. I think we've got a little over 60 in the kind of corporate office now and a little and over 100 in the, in the field and in the retail stores. So, you know, a lot of people that I'm proud are drawn into Kovis paycheck and um, uh, a hell of a lot more than that, uh, happy customers. That's amazing. And obviously, from your time doing consulting, you probably knew what worked and didn't work when it came to people. So when you were thinking about or as you're thinking about now, as continuing to to build the culture and to really make sure that those uh, founding building blocks are still intact, uh, how do you go about it when you're when you're growing a company so fast and adding so many heads, you know, in in such a short period of time? Yeah, um, listen, it's the absolute hardest thing in the game. Um, it is 
uh, not something actually that I really had much experience with. You know, my I think the the hardest thing for me to to uh, to grapple, you know, in my uh, brief career at Tecovis has been has been learning how to 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 manage people individually and manage in a culture as it grows. And I think because I was so mindful of that from the beginning, and the team, you know, at large was mindful of the fact that hey, we're kind of learning how to do this well together. Like we've had a really healthy growth mindset there, but, um, I mean, shoot, we've had to eat a lot of crow and we've had to eat a lot of humble pie and we've given each other a lot of feedback and it has not been easy. Uh, and you know, I went from being in the bottom of the totem pole at multiple organizations to being a CEO and never having managed someone. So, you know, I feel bad for my first person I ever had to manage, which is my (laughs) co-founder, Brandon, uh, he had to really bear the brunt of my learning experience, but um, no, it's been a it's been a blast. Uh, I think you know we're always every company at our scale and who is still quite you know young as far as the company age is concerned. You know, four years old. Um, there's still a lot of you know we're a toddler as a company. There's still a lot of things that we don't know how to do um, yet. We have to do a lot of big boy things. You know, we have to we have scale, you know, so we have to balancing growth and, um, and, you know, remaining scrappy and the culture, um, remaining strong and, and upstart and, and growth mindset. Like, I mean, shoot, it's like a, it's in some ways a stool, like a three or four legged stool that you can't, it won't stand up without those things, but they're also stool legs that are constantly growing at different lengths. And you have to make sure that, that they're sort of, somewhat scaling together in the right way. Absolutely. And one of the questions, uh, Paul, that I typically ask the guests that come on the show is, knowing what you know now, you know, all these years now, you know, the hyper growth, building the business, if you had the opportunity to go back in time, you know, let's say you had the chance to have a, a chat with your younger self, that younger self that was still at the private equity firm and that was Maybe that day that that gave the notice and that was about to start the business. Knowing what you know now, what would be that one piece of business advice that you would give to your younger self before launching a business, and why? Yeah, I, I think first of all, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't ask him or, or tell him tell me, <laughs> um, to do anything. You know, I wouldn't try to change the course of events in any way. Right. I, I, uh, I don't have any regrets in that world. Um, I do think I would tell myself uh, to kind of go on the path of sort of mindfulness and self-betterment, you know, earlier. I think, you know, you don't want to be forced into those. You don't want to be forced into being mindful. Um, you know, I've been lucky in that it's, 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 you know, I have a long way to go. And, and um, you know, I think always being open to feedback is a really healthy mindset. And I think I, I had that then, but I don't think, I quite understood uh, the level of, you know, building a successful company is a lot more about understanding how how people work and and making them work well together than it is about being right all the time or, you know, uh, being able to draw well or, or, you know, create a supply chain that works. I mean, you got to do all those things. It's table stakes, but I would have told myself to be mindful and I probably would have saved myself a little bit of heartache in the early years, but, um, you know, we're, we're, we survived and, uh, <laughs> I'm here. So that's it. Uh, that's it. Very yeah. profound, very profound. Paul, so I guess uh, for the folks that are listening, what is the best way for them 
to reach out and say hi? Yeah, I mean, uh, easiest way to find us is tecovis.com. Uh, if you don't live in one of our markets that has a store, uh, we do have five stores. So if you live in Austin, San Antonio, Dallas, Houston, or Oklahoma City, we have a beautiful place for you to come and, and experience the brand in person. Um, grab a sparkling water or a, or a whiskey, for that matter, and try on some boots. And otherwise, uh, we've got a really friendly customer service team, and you can tell them you heard about <laughs> heard about us on the podcast, and I, I'm sure uh, uh, they'd be thrilled. Amazing. Well, Paul, thank you so much for being on the Deal Maker Show today. No, thank you for having me, Alejandro. This is really enjoyable. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.